You're listening to Charge, a CCS podcast. Hello, y'all. This is Chad Dirksy, and welcome back to the Charge podcast. Uh, we're uh, glad to be part of uh, this opportunity to allow you to see in behind the curtain of conversations that happen at Chattanooga Christian School that help us shape and form who we are and how we do what we do on a daily basis. So joining me again is Ellie Mela. Uh, world language teacher, also the head of that department, Matt Monahan, a Bible teacher, robotics coach, and also the head of the Bible department, uh, and Nikki Ellis, who's our academic dean. Uh, last time we were together, we, we had some fun talking about the beauty of God's creative work out of his abundance rather than out of his need, and how we see in the beauty of the Trinity, um, our connection to community and the way we bear God's image, and this beautiful idea that before we ever let our feet hit the ground, uh, before we've done anything good or bad, that our Heavenly Father is pleased with us. That's a wonderful reminder of the glory of God and his love and care and compassion for us. Uh, Fortunately or unfortunately, we also need to talk about Genesis chapter three and sin enters the world. So how how does that influence what happens at CCS on a daily basis? This idea that we've exchanged the glory in sin, we've exchanged the glory of the creator for the glory of the creature, Uh, and really in many ways wrecked what was part of the beauty of the garden. Um, But what comes next? So what I'd love to do is is just have some some conversation around, around that and particularly how that shows up on a daily basis in our lives individually as adults, but also in our school community and with our students. So somebody take it from there. Yeah, CCS is a historically reformed school. And so when you start talking about Genesis 3 and the fall and sin, many people want to go straight towards total depravity. And this gets misunderstood um, tragically everywhere, even in the reform community. In fact, uh, Watterson, who wrote Calvin and Hobbes, based this comic off of the two thinkers in history that he perceived as having the most pessimistic view of humanity in all of history. And um, even in reform circles, people think that total depravity means that, that people are as bad as they could possibly be, or like they can do no good. And that really is a misconception. And historically, total depravity really means uh, that sin affects everything. And it was really in contrast to the Roman Catholic doctrine that reason was somehow unfallen. And um, Calvin and the others argued that even our reason is affected by the fall along with everything else. And this is another one of those ideas that has consequences you know, there are many um, reformed pastors who will even stand up and preach to their people that, you know, you are pus, you are scum, you are worms. And, and this is error. You know, if, if uh, a congregation, if they're followers of Christ and they're in Christ, they are the bride of Christ. You know, the Lord sees them with the, with the same beauty and glory of Jesus himself. And so, you know, for them to stand up and, and speak the opposite is, is, is potentially harmful to the congregation besides being untrue. And imagine if teachers, you know, reformed teachers were to stand in front of a classroom and, and look at all their students like, you are pus, you are scum, you are worms. I mean, that would be disastrous. And, you know, there might be teachers out there, you know, um, not at our school, but, uh, you know, that, that operate off of this. And so even, you know, going back to what we said before, everything that God created is good. And so even somebody who's not a Christian, you know, is God's creation and, and, and they're good because of that. And so the real question becomes, um, if you have a person 
and they're God's creation bearing his image. Every part of their being is affected by the fall. The question becomes one of direction. You know, is that person living their life and, and making their decisions based on themselves uh, or are they living in a direction towards God? And, you know, the Christian view is that if you are living your life towards God, then you are in a position of becoming what you already are in Christ. And if not, you're just serving yourself and you're really in a position of unbecoming, you know, towards nothingness or separation from God or however you want to phrase it. It's interesting to me in, in that that idea of direction, we're most fully human, right? That beautiful thing that God's created us to be when our aim and our work is pointed towards the glory of our creator, of, of the triune God. And we're less human when our aim is seeking ourselves. So, so in some senses, there's practical realities, right? The boundaries within which God's created us to live and to glorify him are what allow us to be most fully human. When we operate outside of those boundaries, we're not becoming, our, our aim is not becoming as God intended and created us to be. So sometimes we overfocus on only the rule side of God says we have to be this because that's the rule. And if you break it, you're bad. Rather than saying this beautiful creation that we saw in Genesis 1 and 2, when we are living and acting in ways that are consistent, for example, with what we find in the Ten Commandments, that those those are evidences of, or those are things that make us most human in terms of what God's created us. So, yes, they are ways that God calls us to obedience. But if we if we're only exclusively pointing to Genesis three to say when you when you violate those things, you're bad and you're sinful, instead of saying you're not, when you are living outside of those boundaries, you're not being all that God's created you out of his abundance to be, that shifts the way the conversation happens and shifts the way we can disciple our students as well. Mm-hmm. And I think along with that, the, um, the function of those boundaries being, this is, a, this is a pathway of righteousness and this is a pathway of unrighteousness. And so easily in our minds, when we want to think about, um, when we think about sin, we make it about, yes, breaking the rules is some kind of sin, but also following the rules is some kind of righteousness. I'm a pretty good person because I do the right things at the right time, in the right way. I hand my stuff in on time. Um, I'm pretty obedient, whatever it is. And that whole notion of what does it look like to see every aspect of my, my energy, my time, my passions, and my delights turned toward, um, turned toward God. I think about that kind of opposite of what we were talking about last time too. Um, we recognize that God's delight is in us, but I think the flip side here is recognizing that the distortion and brokenness of the fall is that our delight is not in him. Our delights, our passions, our joys are all turned um, in, in those wrong directions that Matt was describing. And so to think about how the project of our work with students is not just to monitor behavior, but to cultivate a rightly oriented delight is it's just a radically different project. And it is interesting too, I think, to consider that the understanding of ourselves as as impacted by the fall, even in that understanding, God is giving us grace because as we understand ourselves as touched by the fall, then we come to a deeper knowledge of the importance of the work of Jesus and a and a more intimate relationship with him. Um, I was one of those kids that, Nikki spoke of 
that was a, kind of a rule follower. <laughs> I did that. I checked the boxes. I was a I was like a a good CCS student um, when I was here as a student, and I didn't have a good understanding of myself as sinful. I could articulate that because I was raised in a reformed circle, um, and so I could say that I was sinful, but I didn't. I didn't understand my need for Jesus until college, really. Um, and I think that understanding is transformative. And if we can help our students see, yes, you need Jesus, but you're not stuck here. This is this is a beautiful cycle of like understanding the depth of your own sin, but then also understanding the greatness of, of the work of Jesus. Um, and there was a book I read in college that really helped me towards that called Respectable Sins by Something Bridges. Um, and it's a great book that was just helpful in understanding like, there are small, not small, there are sins that we commit on a daily basis without even without even knowing that we can often be blind to. Um, and not, but but not to stop there and get stuck there and just do the the navel gazing of like, oh, I'm so terrible, even even my thoughts are corrupted, but we're not stuck here. We have we have the work of Christ to lift us out of that. Yeah, and that again, that navel gazing can be both the stuckness and the brokenness. And it's also, I think, what happens in those same versions of self-esteem, right? The most important thing is for me to consider how I'm thinking about myself, what um, what's going on in me, this, this kind of self-knowledge. And even with a, a sort of positive veneer of psychological language, so much of that is a version of being directed towards ourselves and, and oriented towards our individualism um, and and not oriented towards towards God, either in truth or in delight. Yeah, there's some interesting things to unpack that. So yeah. we're going to try that for a minute. But but let's start with so so I think what we're saying is I I can be doing the right thing, right, mm-hmm. following the rule. But if my aim is towards myself rather than towards our creator, our triune God, who again created us as his image bearers out of our abundance, if my aim is towards myself, then that right thing is still a sinful thing mm-hmm. because my aim is at at my at myself, my individual needs, my individual purpose. It's a it's a complicated thing to to process and to think about. Or on the other side of that, we don't want to be in this place where we're navel gaving and we're stuck there. We we do need Jesus, but I'm I'm wallowing in kind of self-pity and shame because I, I really, maybe I don't trust that that work of Jesus is enough for me. So talk about the influence of shame and and how kind of sin drives shame in a way that actually impacts the way we live on a daily basis. Somebody please talk about that. <laughs> it's but, a big ask, yeah, right? No, I mean, could somebody just talk about shame? Sure. Um, <laughs> Tell I, us about yours, Matt. Yes. I'm, I, there are many things that I'm ashamed of and I struggle with. no. Um, to, to go back and try to get to shame, you know, first when Nikki was talking about that language of love and delight, um, I think is, is one of the most important things and maybe the hardest thing to bring out in a classroom, um, for a lot of reasons. Um, but one of the problems is what we love most. And I think we talked about this a little bit before in terms of, uh, everything is good. And the problem is not everything is equally good. And when you love a less good thing too much, you know, it's idolatry. And one of the big ones is, you know, the love of self. And uh, I think it's C.S. Lewis said something along these lines that you can be an incredibly self-centered person either by being an arrogant person 
or for our language here by being a very shameful person. Um, both of them are incredibly self-centered and um, both of them, I would say, are, are rooted in a failure to either understand or, or believe or trust the gospel. You know, because it, either way, it becomes all about me, whether it's I'm so great, I'm so great, or I'm such a loser, I'm such a loser. Um, you know, you, your eyes are, are on the wrong place. And, um, you know, people quoted a lot these days, that other quote about humility, you know, it's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking about your, yourself less. And, you know, if, if our eyes really are uh, off of ourself and on the Lord himself or on other people, that's like the fastest antidote, you know, for, for that problem of shame. And going back just to, to end with that same language of love and delight, you know, 20 years ago coming out of college, I was such a rationalist. And I would have thought that anybody using the language of love and delight, I would be suspicious of them because, you know, emotions are unreliable, they're fickle. Uh, in fact, my wife and I had to go back for post-marital counseling, a uh, year two of marriage. And the pastor had to tell me, Matt, your wife's emotions are valid. She's not just trying to manipulate you. And so now 20 years later, here I am telling you that I think that our loves are primary even to our reasons uh, and even to our actions. Like everything else is rooted in, in what we love. And if we can just stop loving ourselves so much, um, so many other things will fall into place. Mm-hmm. And I think healthy community is is a way to to lift us out of shame. So this is what we try to cultivate in our classrooms, right? A healthy sense of of community, and so that students don't have to think only about how they're doing and what's happening in in their own learning and their own place in the classroom, but they're looking to others and they're and they're seeing others have struggles and get past them and and caring for others around them so that they don't have to focus so much on themselves. And so I think shame happens in loneliness often and community and healthy community and the, and the type of community that we, that we would strive to, to cultivate here would be the type of community that, that lifts each individual member out of their shame and towards a focus on others. It's really interesting what you're, what you're kind of saying, at least what I'm hearing a part of, it's not exclusively what you're saying, but a part of it is when I'm giving of myself for the other, so when I'm sacrificing some of that aim towards myself for the other, right, that's a place where I'm most fully human because God's made us to be part of that community. It's the community that's the abundance. Matt talked about this last week, that that God in this perfect relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit created humanity the cosmo- and the cosmos out of abundance. And, and so therefore, as his image bearers, as we're giving to the other, as we're as we're releasing some of our claim to rights and liberties to give and lean towards or lean into another, um, we're, we're acting in a way that's representative of the way God's created us and we're becoming more human. And that's kind of what gets us out of that shame, right? We're, we're not stuck navel gazing in those places. We're seeing the good, good work that God's allowing us to do in the context of a whole community. Yeah, and I think that that imaging of God, Chad, is a specific reflection of him at the moment of redemption too, right? And incarnation, what is it to, um, from, from, the, from, the, from a celestial throne to say, what I would like to do is step down from individual glory um, and comfort and ease and step into the sloshing mess of humanity and the finite nature of mortality and friends who are gonna betray me and mess things up in order to 
know and be known by my people. Um, and that, that I, I, I think those things are easy to say. I also think that sense of what it does to think about our deepest shame already intimately known by God um, and that he sees through it and he sees us and there is still that delight. And, and those are the stories and the truths that we need to rehearse and reminder to one another in community. And sometimes it happens through physical action and gesture and being that way for one another. And, and sometimes it is also too very deliberate and explicit reminders of this is how God sees you. This is how I accept you. Um, we so easily lose sight um, of that truth and reality. Yeah, I'd only wanna add that the things we're talking about um, it's not, it's, it's so much more than just like chicken noodle soup for the soul. And, um, I'm reading Jason Hood's book right now, The Imitation of Christ. And he uses this language in one of the chapters of living according to or against the grain of reality. And, and, and that, that's a really helpful image, uh, to picture. And so the things we're talking about are like gravity, you know, you're going against the grain. If you're going to love yourself, whether you're an arrogant person or a shameful person or loving the wrong things, you know, this isn't just living out a fairy tale. This is, this is like, you know, Hey, you can disobey gravity all you want, you know, believe it's not there and, and you are going to pay the price. Yeah. I, I think it's a, it's a great analogy to say, right, this isn't chicken soup for the soul. Uh, I'll, I'll leave it to Mac to come up with all those great kind of word pictures uh, that I'll think about long after this podcast recording is over. Um, but, but isn't it an amazing thing that even as we're talking about shame, so if we think of the picture of us wrapped up in our own shame, totally enveloped in our own shame, that God in his grace sees through us, sees through that, uh, and and experiences us in love and delight. Again, that's not just chicken soup for the soul. That's the truth of the gospel. That's at the center of what we're trying to communicate is the sin, right, that drives us to shame. It's not that it doesn't exist, but we're not as bad as we could be. But even in the worst of it, God sees through what we the shame we wrap ourselves in to see us with love and delight is a is a wonderful story. So how does how does that truth show up right in the things we do practically on a day-to-day basis? How do we how do we try to help our students see in the way that we treat them and the way that we engage them? How do we image God seeing piercing through that shame we wrap ourselves in to see us in love and delight? How how does that often show up in a place like CCS? I think boundaries is a place that it shows up providing providing loving boundaries for our students and saying, here's a line, and if you cross it, there will be consequences, is actually a very loving thing to do. In a, in a G.K. Chesterton book I read, he gives an image of um, children playing on a, on a cliff, and there's a big fence around them, and they can't... So they're in the fence, and they're happy playing, and they don't know what's on the other side. They don't know there's a sheer cliff on the other side and they're just having a great time. But then remove the fence and they they don't play anymore. They're terrified of the edge of the cliff. And so I think giving our students loving and clearly defined boundaries for what's expected, how we, how we behave towards one another, how we behave towards the work that we have to do, how we behave towards the teachers that we have is a way that we love our students and we show them our our human need for boundaries because of 
because of how we are, because of the image of God in us, but also because of the sin that is in us, we need those boundaries. And it's a, it's a loving, formative thing that we can provide for our students. Yeah. And I, I think along with that, the way that we communicate about those boundaries is so important. Um, I'm fascinated with language. I'm del- delighted by the books that I've heard mentioned in this conversation. And I think about how often it is easy to step into language patterns of correction that in, that intentionally or unintentionally use shame to control behavior. Um, and if you start watching for it in yourself, it's really easy to hear examples of that. Um, and I think about some of the things that can happen in in Christian circles too, right? Sort of addressing a certain behavior and then saying something like, Jesus is watching. But, uh, so fear already as the motivator there. Um, any of those, you know better. Um, these are These are all structures that are designed to introduce shame and to use that to control behavior. So um, I think to have, to be really thoughtful about language. So we want directions and um, for for what we're asking for to be to be clear. But the choices that students make are really separate from our sense of love or value or care for them. So they can make choices. Those choices may have consequences, but those things don't create resentment on my part or bitterness or frustration or an emotional response. Um, or any of those sorts of things. Um, so even just the the language cues, I think, can be really important. No, that's so good. And so I'm thinking of a situation along the lines of what Nikki's saying, and I'm picturing it on the playground with the fence and the boundaries, you know, where, where Ellie was talking. Uh, and I, I put some of my robotics kids in there. And you take one kid who's just really gifted, really brilliant. And, you know, part of what's awesome about being a teacher, incidentally, is you're in this, like, storehouse of all these kids and it's so much potential. Like I can't think of another job where you're just, it's like the Fort Knox of gold bars of potential and you see what these kids could become and it's a huge privilege, but it's so much power. And so you take one of these kids on the playground with all the potential and then you see him look over at a kid who's maybe not performing at the same capacity. And maybe maybe the kid is a little smaller than the other and you just see this flicker in that kid and he just, he kind of, the kid, the smaller kid makes a mistake and this kid pounces on it and puts him down. And it's just, it's, it, it's evil, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's wicked. And you see one of your people um, who you see with all this potential and all this good and just tears into this other guy. And you don't have that visceral reaction. You don't take it personally. You don't suddenly say, oh, this is, you know, this is a rotten egg of all the kids. <laughs> and, and you stop and you think, man, where's that coming from? You know, yeah. and it, it does go back to that self-centeredness, whether it's arrogance or shame. Most of the time, even both of those are rooted in some kind of insecurity, mm-hmm. um, and that's one of those times. And I, I think you know, coaching sports or robotics is where you're really w- walking alongside the kids to where you can have these conversations more easily than than in the classroom. And you pull them aside and you say, "Where's that coming from?" Yes, you know, let's talk about that. And boy, it is an opportunity to go for the jugular of the gospel to say, you know, think of how Christ sees you, you know, think of the power of the mm-hmm. gospel in your own life that instead of, you know, Jesus doubling down on you or watching and finding you guilty, which is a powerful metaphor. I just finished 1984 over the weekend, <laughs> um, you know, that, that portrayal and explanation of the gospel and not just an explanation, but like, hey, come go with me. Let's walk through it. You know, that's the power of the gospel, you know, in a, in a very 
real situation. Mm-hmm. And I think this is something that we sense whether we know the gospel or not. We we sense this this it's in so much literature. We we sense this idea that the the line of good and evil cuts through the heart of of every man. It's not outside of ourselves. And so as we read literature that's written by non-Christians or that that is part of something that we maybe wouldn't see ourselves as a Christian community. We can consider this and say, okay, where is, how is this person who, who doesn't know the gospel, how do they have a natural understanding of the gospel? And it's because of, of how, how God made us to be. And, and there are ways that we're created that we're all aware of. I think everyone knows that we carry good things in us and bad things in us, whether we acknowledge the image of God in us or not. And so I think, that's really important as we guide our students through conversations on things that are hard and pieces that are not written by Christians to look for where's the truth in this piece? Um, what can I take from this? And, and, and the power of God in that here are people who don't acknowledge God's existence, who, who actually are acknowledging his existence in some way and what they've written or what they've expressed. Yeah, it's actually a declaration of confidence in the truth of the biblical narrative to read a broad range of things, to expect that there are authors who are who are simply paying close attention to reality, to human to human relationships, and they have an understanding of those things. And in their portrayal of that, they are going to display truth because the world that they're writing about is God's. It's unavoidable when we're reading somebody who is telling about how things are um, and when they're creatively using beautiful language to do so, um, whether that's to expose goodness in the world or to help us realize and see the brokenness and distortion, it is going to, when it's well done, reflect the truth. Yeah, and I think, Nikki, you brought up earlier this incarnational movement of God that he didn't he actually engaged his image bearers to bring about his work and he stepped into the messiness mm-hmm. of humankind to do it. So when we step into a piece of literature that's that's written by someone who doesn't acknowledge the 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 fact that they're a bearer of God's image and in in that study we see the beauty of God's glory that that there there was no intent whatsoever for them to reflect the glory of God but we also have to step into the messiness of it. Mm -hmm. So the actual stepping into the messiness of looking at the good that comes out of even an intentional reflection of God's glory also comes with it, the messy part of it. And Mm -hmm. we have to help our students discern what is a reflection of God's glory in this and what is a reflection of the wrong direction, right? Where, where do we see this direction, this aim go wrong when there's this good thing in there? But that means we're, gonna, we're sometimes gonna read pieces of literature that also have themes that are antithetical to what God's called us to. And sometimes people say a Christian school shouldn't do that. So hopefully this isn't meant to be an infomercial about why we do everything at CCS, but I I do think it is important for us to talk about we are actually seeing God's kingdom and representing him when we act the way he does and step into these things incarnational and see his glory in the midst of things that also have brokenness in them. Uh, I mentioned a minute ago finishing 1984 as an audiobook. And uh, the same day, I'm just doing yard work, you know, wrapping up all these things I started the summer, I finished the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And two very different views of life and two very different views of death. You have this, 
you know, um, Tolkien writing on, you know, awe and wonder and God's world. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful book. And then you've got 1984, you know, spoiler alert, plug your, plug your ears if you want to hear this. But at the end of it, the guy gets his brains blown out after the organization actually totally destroys his entire life. So bleak, so pessimistic, and yet so many takeaways. Uh, you know, it, it's a book of wisdom in terms of, uh, what power can do to people mm -hmm. and about man's tendency, you know, total depravity. It, it gets into everything. And so, you know, Chad and Nikki, leaders of the school, 1984 would give you guys some, you know, <laughs> how things can veer towards oligarchy and how you guys can abuse your power, you know? Um, it's, it's worth reading. Yeah, well, I'm gonna just, can I, you know, here's the shame I'm wrapping myself up <laughs> right now as I, as I hear all these people referencing all these good books they're reading. I'm thankful that Matt actually admitted it was an audio book and he wasn't actually reading the written page himself. But besides that, I don't have any good books I can tell you right now that I'm reading to do this. So this is a good time for me to switch gears um, and, and really think about these good things, some good things that we really struggle with in terms of what are our first loves, right? And think of freedom and, and liberty, right? Those things that I often think about as individual rights of freedom and liberty, not saying those are bad things, right? We can see throughout scripture how God has given us and granted us freedom and gives us liberties, but what happens when those things get twisted because our natural tendency in sin, right, is towards autonomy and individualism? How do we juggle these good things of liberty and freedom against our natural propensity to make them, right, our first love? How do we work through those things, particularly in a country that we live in, a wonderful country that, that is built on foundations of freedom and liberty that sometimes we can take for granted, but other times those are really good things, but they make terrible gods. So tell me about that a little. Yes. Um, I do think in, in conversations like this, where we start to delve into specifics, a question about defining terms is always at hand. Um, and a lot of different things can be meant by liberty and freedom. Freedom from what? freedom to what? Um, and I just happened to know because I popped in and overheard it that this conversation goes on, on in 12th grade Bible. Um, and so Matt, would you be willing to talk through some of the different notions of freedom that you discussed? Uh, sure. Um, no, it, it, just like Chad said, you know, some people, not everybody parses the words like this and, you know, language changes over time, but at least traditionally, some people would say that, you know, liberty is is a kind of freedom for something or to do something. Um, and freedom is, is a freedom from something. And so it's just two sides of the same coin, you know, that there, there are things that you are, you know, obligations that you have to do and then, you know, bad things that you have a freedom from. Uh, and that's helpful for things of the Christian worldview. But I find um, more helpful for conversations like this is to go to that individualism versus collectivism. And so like as Americans, we can look at China and say, man, in fact, I, I, I like to bond with like the fine arts people and I'll be scrolling Instagram and find some cool things and I'll shoot them over to, you know, Ray and Mia and others. And I just sent him one of this Chinese art factory where everybody was copying this masterpiece and there was no room for creativity or individuality at all. And it's so easy for us as Americans to say, yeah, look at those losers. They could use a few American values. This is why we're dominating globally. Um, but we don't see our own faults. And, you know, the gospel goes into every culture and every culture it goes into, it has something to say about the unhealthy things there. So the gospel would go into a place like China and say, hey, you collectivist pagans, uh, you need to have a little more individuality. 
But that same gospel might go into America and say, hey, you individualist cowboy pagans, <laughs> um, you need to have a little more collectivism. You know, again, going back to the, the grain of reality, you know, the way the universe was meant to run, uh, if, you, if you become the total collective, you know, you're the Borg on Star Trek, you know, there's no individuality at all. And if you see your society as nothing but, you know, everybody's their own, you know, Marlboro man, cowboy, you know, individual, you're going against the grain of reality. You know, the, the gospel corrects both of those. And so then the question becomes, instead of fixating on China, what is the gospel saying to us, to our community in terms of where are our values as when we're completely focused, even in the church, I think it's a big deal in the church that, you know, my rights, my freedoms, my liberties, don't you dare take those away from me. Um, that, that's not totally consistent with, with what Jesus teaches his followers to be like. Mm-hmm. And this is, I think, another place that the study of world language helps us as we learn about other cultures. One of, one of the most formative things I've experienced in my spiritual life is, is listening to and talking with Christians from other countries and especially Christians who have been a part of the church for a long time. There are a lot of things that that we as American Christians accept as normal um, in, in our kind of more individualist culture um, that in other countries they don't, or even pieces of the 10 commandments that to us are like natural, normal. Of course, every Christian acts this way, that in other cultures, there are other, there are others of the 10 commandments that are more important. Um, and so I think, learning from other Christians and looking at the way the Bible is read and interpreted in other cultures can help us find those blind spots, can help us see where are we, where are we looking at scripture through the lenses of our culture rather than letting scripture inform our view of our own culture. And then that allows us, that allows us then to see the beauty and good, good things in our culture, right? And also see the things that, that are, are, are taking us in a wrong direction or away from those things that God's called us to to be, to be who He's meant for us to be. I, I think that that it's not it's not saying well all this is bad. That that's not the way that works, right? We're we're seeing both the good and the struggle in the midst of of all that. As we learn more about others, as we become more aware, it allows us to see more of ourselves and what God's actually freeing us from. Yeah. The the goodness of creation pervades all cultures, um, as does the brokenness and distortion. And the activities that we've discussed are ways to be freed from the limitations of our individual perspective. One of the reasons to read is to get outside of my own experience, my own culture, all of these things that shape the way that I see the world. Um, and it's not, it's not simply escapism. It's, um, it's actually a way to understand truth as it is more deeply and more richly. And an exploration of other cultures works a similar sort of way. We so often, we don't even know that certain ways that we see the world are culturally um, limited until we have approached something other and that imagination expands in that kind of way. So as a general rule, again, not to be an information, information, infomercial, as a, as a general rule, that does show up in how we pick the yep. literature we read. It does show up in how we choose to study history mm-hmm. and, and who we study in history. 
Uh, is that fair to say? It is fair to say, yes, Chad. Um, and and that it's also still critical, right? I think like the other way that could go completely far the other direction is some sort of wide open, you know, everything is the same kind of good. Everything should just be appreciated no matter what happens, if it's in another culture or our own culture or in a book or another person. It's just that person's truth. It's that person's reality. It's all... Um, and and really what we're able to do is understand more complexity to the world that we live in in order to be able to run all of that through a lens of is this directed towards um, God for his glory in the ways that he has normed reality. Um, and that's a measure that we can then more accurately apply to our own culture, our own self and our own experiences, even as we... Um, equip ourselves and our students to more effectively apply that lens to other cultures and other texts. There's not a book out there that's perfectly good, not even the safest, cleanest thing that you would think is just is just as safe as it could possibly be. There's still some way that it's going to reflect distortion. Now, it's been a decade and a half since I was an American history teacher, but back in the day alongside the text, we would have the kids read uh, Paul Johnson and Howard Zinn. You know, and Howard Zinn is an American hating Western critic, Marxist socialist. I mean, he's he would be really seen as a bad guy as a lot of people in our community. And it was so important that we read him. And and think of the alternative, right? You you go to a Christian school and maybe you're just reading the uh, what is it, Abeka? That it's just the very very Christian version of U.S. history, perhaps to a fault, probably to a fault. Um, and if that's all kids are getting, that's their only diet, they step out of here. And as soon as they get out into the secular world, it's like they're hearing these things for the first time. And suddenly it looks like the Christian community has just been telling me a lie. They've only been giving me one side of the story. And you're ill-equipped and you're ill-prepared. I mean, it, it would, I wouldn't just say that it's okay that we're reading these other books, you know, dystopias and these other things. I would argue even stronger that it is a it would be a disservice to students if we didn't read those books. Yeah, it, going back to the playground analogy, um, as we kind of get to a close of this, if I think about the teaching and learning process as that playground analogy, that there's the cliff on the other side and there's there's the fence that goes around it, and within side of that is the boundaries right, that God gives us in truth, right? The timeless truths of scripture provides us the boundaries to engage, not play, but to engage a breadth of information in our pursuit of truth that isn't always going to be consistent with those timeless truths of scripture to be able to process, to be able to think. And it's not just apologetics. It's not just a way to show and prove that our faith is true, but it's a part of learning to understand the beauty of God's creation and discern what is true and what is not true as we run through the paces within the boundaries, right? If we don't go through the exercise of the practice, the repetition of helping our students discern what is true and what is not true, we're not allowing them to step safely into a world where those that that fence that's around the cliff may not be there when they step out of a place like CCS. Yeah, a number of years ago, I think it was the Barna Group, or based on its research, they, they wrote a book, somebody wrote a book called Sticky Faith, and they were looking at the kids who left the church as they grew up into adults. Some stayed with it and some left. 
And what was it about the kids that stayed? And the overwhelming correlation with the kids who stayed was they grew up in a Christian environment where they felt like they were free to ask any question they wanted to ask or explore any idea that they could, that it was a safe place to do that. You know, because if, if the gospel is true, we have nothing to fear about all these other ideas out there. We're not Mormons, right? I'm really sorry, but you know, the, you, you read the story of Mormonism, it, it can't be believed by a thinking person. And when you look at the Mormon apologetic pages, at the end of the day, you see folks, their final resolution is, well, I prayed about it and the Holy Spirit sealed it to my heart, so that settles it. You know, that's not a rally cry. And that's, that's, that's why a lot of people are leaving the Mormon church. Yeah, so kind of to wrap this up, the beauty is we have this confidence that the gospel is true. And that gospel certainly is addressing our status before God, our righteousness before God. But it's also a gospel that is, is cosmic in a real sense, in a real way that helps us understand the world that God's called us into. So as we, as we think about, right, Genesis chapter 3, and we think about Genesis chapter one and two, what it means we're made in his image and, and sin has now entered the world and it, it infects every part of our existence. The next time we get together, we get to talk about redemption. What is Jesus actually doing as he incarnates himself, as he condescends to be like us? What is he actually doing? It is saving our souls. It is justifying us and giving us that right status, but it's also so, so much more. If you want to hear what the so, so much more is, uh, check us out next week. Thanks for spending time with us.